You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Phalanxes of Atlans by F.V.W. Mason Chapter 1, Part B Nelson remained where he was, shaking like a frightened horse, and bathed in a cold sweat. "'Wonder what it was,' he muttered numbly. He broke off, for in the terrible darkness sounded a low but perfectly audible thud, 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 and also the subtle noise of some rough surface rasping gently over the stone. His nerves crisped and shrieked for relief. "'It's coming again,' he told himself, and ejected the spent cartridge from the Winchester. "'No use. It'll get me, but I may as well fight as long as I can.' Even stronger grew the musty smell of blood, while that uncanny thud-thud sound continued at regular intervals. Nelson waited, breath halted, and finger on trigger, but still the darkness yielded no glimpse of those awful saucer-like eyes. Emboldened, he stooped, and jerking off his left glove, commenced to grope among the boulders. Somewhere near at his feet the flashlight must be lying. Hoping against hope that its fall had not shattered the bulb, he ran his fingers over the cold, damp stones, every instant expecting to feel the clutch of the unseen monster. How tiny, how puny he was! All at once his fingers encountered the smooth, familiar shape of the flash, and he raised it cautiously through the darkness. Patiently he shifted the Winchester to his left hand, in order to set the flashlight on the top of a flat rock pointing it as nearly as he could determine in the direction from whence came those ominous, stealthy sounds. "'Guess I'll switch on the light,' he decided, and trust to drop whatever it is before it reaches me." Taking a fresh grip on his quivering nerves, Nelson cautiously cocked the thirty-eight fifty-five, cuddled the familiar stock to his shoulder. He sighted, then with his right hand pushed down the catch-lever of the flashlight. Instantly a dazzling white beam shot forth to shatter the gloom. The hair on the back of Nelson's hands itched unbearably, while the cold fingers of madness clutched at his brain, for the sight which met his eyes all but bereft him of his wavering sanity. There, belly up, across a low ridge of basalt, lay a hideous reptile, which in form faintly resembled an enormous and fantastic kangaroo. Its scabby belly was of the unhealthy yellow of a grub a hue which gave way to a leaden gray as the wart-covered skin reached at the back. Two enormous hind legs, each thick as a man's torso and each equipped with three dagger-like talons, struck out in helpless fury at the air, while a long lizard-like tail threshed powerfully back and forth, scattering ponderous boulders right and left as though they had been marbles. The flashlight being trained as it was, the monster's head and forequarters were invisible, all save two very much smaller and shorter front legs, which, like the hinder ones, clawed spasmodically. "'The D.T.'s!' gasped Nelson, conscious that he was trembling like an aspen. He suppressed a wild desire to laugh. "'Yes, I've gone crazy!' He glanced downwards and leaped swiftly back, for creeping over the stones toward his fur outer boots meandered a wide rivulet of bright scarlet blood. From its surface rose small curling feathers of steam, which drifting towards the tunnel's roof merged with that gray vaporous current flowing steadily towards the sunless arctic expanse outside. 
It took Nelson a long five minutes to sufficiently recover his equilibrium for action. All he could do was to stare at that grotesque, gargoyle-like creature as it writhed in leisurely and persistent death-throes. "'Guess I winged it all right. My God, what a nasty beast! Looks like one of those allosaurs I read about in college. It couldn't be, though. That tribe of dinosaurs died out five million years ago.' Cautiously, he scrambled around among the high black stones, casting the searchlight beams before him and holding the Winchester always ready in his hand, while trying to recall snatches of paleontology studied at college long years ago. Yes, it must be a survival of one of the carnivorous dinosaurs, he decided, then paused, increasingly conscious of that steady, thudding noise. What caused it? At last he found himself before the creature's gigantic and repulsive head, which lay limp over a blood-bathed stone, huge jaws partially open, and serrated rows of wicked, stiletto-sharp teeth gleaming yellowly in the flashlight's rays. The head in shape was bullet-like, ending in a blunt nose as big as a bushel basket and in two prominent nostrils. The green, lidless eyes were still open, shining faintly, and seemed to follow his movements but the steaming blood poured with the force of a small hose from between triple row of bayonet-like teeth that curved inward like those of a shark, to splash and bubble freely to the rock floor, and to dribble horribly over the warty gray hide. Then Nelson discovered an amazing fact. About the great scaly neck, thick as a boy's waist, was fastened a ponderous collar, set with short, sharp spikes. Nelson gasped. "'What in hell?' he cried. "'This damn thing's somebody's property!' His mind staggered at the thought of dealing with a race that could and would domesticate such a hideous monster. "'Well, it's no use standing here,' he muttered, wiping the sweat from his eyes. "'This isn't getting poor Alden away from those devils.' Thud! Thud! In the act of turning he paused, listened once more. Then he discovered to his amazement that the heart of the apparently dead reptile was still beating strongly. He could even see the yellow skin of its belly rise and fall. The effect was grotesque, uncanny. "'Of course,' muttered the shaken aviator. "'I'd forgotten a reptile's ganglions will keep on beating for hours, like that shark we killed off Pomotu. Its heart didn't stop for five hours.' Leaving the slain Allosaurus behind, the aviator limped onwards, doggedly following a trail which wound down ever onwards, into the depths of the earth. Gradually the air became so filled with steam that he stripped off his fur jumper and trousers. Clad in a khaki flannel shirt, serge trousers, and shoe-packs, he paused long enough to count his cartridges, and found there were just fourteen. Hell! Not very many with which to venture into an unknown abyss. He distributed them in his pockets, and, somewhat relieved of the weight of the fur suit, took up his advance, playing the flashlight ahead of him as he went. Poor Alden, he thought. I wonder if he's still alive. Every moment expecting to stumble over the mangled corpse of his friend, he hurried on, making better time over the cavern floor, but soon even the lighter clothing commenced to feel oppressive. Must be the earth's heat, he muttered, while the steam clouds rolled by him like ghostly serpents. Guess the crust is very thin here, something like Yellowstone. Probably I'll find some thermal springs ahead. Just as he spoke, the tunnel took a sharp turn to the right. He scrambled around the bend to stand petrified, for with the suddenness of lightning, a flood of dazzling, 
orange-red light sprang into being. Momentarily it blinded him, then revealed strange, incomprehensible scenes. It appeared that two short shafts of incandescent flame roared through transparent columns of glass on either side of the passage some fifty yards distant. Subconsciously Nelson realized that these columns began and ended in stonework that was smooth and well-joined. As his eyes became accustomed to the glare, he distinguished beside each light pillar two bronze doors, some eight feet high and semicircular in shape. These had been evidently pulled back to expose the lights. Then his breath stopped in his throat, for there, standing beside them, was a gleaming group of six or eight of the strangest creatures Nelson could ever have imagined. They were men, there was no mistaking that, men of normal size, but they were so helmeted and encased in a curious type of armor, that for a moment he believed them gargoyles. Quite motionless he stood, clutching the cold barrel of the Winchester in a spasmodic grip and staring up at those two watch-towers, built like gigantic swallows' nests into sheer rock wall. He could see the warriors stationed there, peering curiously down at him from the depths of heavy bronze helmets, helmets which in shape much resembled those of an ancient Grecian hoplite, for the nose-guards and cheek-pieces descended so low as to completely mask the features of those strange guards. For crests those helmets bore exquisitely wrought bronze dolphins, with brilliant blue eyes of sapphire. But what fascinated Nelson most was the curious armor they wore. Beneath breastplates of polished bronze, these strange warriors wore what seemed to be a kind of chain-mail. Yet it was not that, for the texture had more the appearance of some heavy but pliant leather, finished with a metallic surfacing. Suddenly the spell of mutual amazement was broken, for a tall warrior in a breastplate that glittered with diamonds and seemed altogether more ornate than the rest, clapped a short brass horn to his lips and blew a single piercing note. At once there appeared on the tunnel's floor, not a hundred yards from the startled aviator, a rank of perhaps twenty soldiers, accoutred exactly like those he beheld by the light-boxes. They came scrambling over the boulders, their shadows grotesquely preceding them. In their hands were long-shafted spears, and on their left arms rectangular shields, charged with a lively dolphin in the act of swimming. Some of them, however, held short hoses in their hands, hoses that sprouted from tight brass coils strapped to their broad shoulders. Again the commanding figure, aloft, raised the horn. From the tail of his eye Nelson caught the gleam of metal in the orange glare, while a blast, as harsh as the scream of a fire siren, echoed and re-echoed eerily through the passage. There appeared a fresh detachment. Nelson shrank back in horror for these bronze-armored warriors led at the end of a powerful chain two more of those huge, ferocious allosaurs, exactly like the one he had slain but a short while back. Like well-regulated automatons, the hoplite rank opened to permit the passage of those repulsive, eager monsters, then closed up again and halted, spears leveled before them in the precise manner of an ancient Grecian phalanx while the men with those curious hose-like contrivances ran out to guard the flanks. "'I'm done for now,' thought Nelson as he threw off the Winchester's safety catch. "'I suppose they'll turn those nightmares loose on me.' He was right. For all the world as though they led war-dogs, the keepers in brazen armor advanced, 
the dull metallic clank of their accoutrement clearly discernible above the sibilant hiss of their hideous charges, which hopped along grotesquely like kangaroos, using their long and powerful tails as a counterpoise. Then the officer watching from the left hand Swallow's nest shouted a hoarse, unintelligible command, whereupon one of the keepers raised his right hand in a sharp gesture that instantly flattened the incredible monster to earth, exactly like an obedient bird-dog. As in a fantastic dream, Nelson watched one of the armored guardians unsnap the hook of the powerful chain by which his allosaurus was secured. Then, whistling sharply, he clapped his hands and pointed straight at the motionless aviator. The creature's green-white eyes flickered back and forth, and a chill colder than the outer Arctic invaded Nelson's breast as those unearthly eyes came to rest upon him. Meanwhile, the other Allosaurus remained crouched, whining impatiently for its keepers to cast it loose. Fixing burning eyes upon the American, the foremost keeper threw back his head. Arie! he shouted. Instantly the freed Allosaurus arose, balanced its enormous bulk, then commenced to leap forward at tremendous speed, clearing fifteen or twenty feet with each jump, and uttering a curious whistling scream as it bore down, a terrifying vision of gleaming teeth and talons. Shaking off the paralysis of despair, Nelson whipped up the Winchester and, as before, sighted squarely between those blazing gem-like eyes. When the huge monster was but twenty feet away, he fired, and the report thundered and banged in the cavern like the crash of a summer storm. In mid-air the ghastly carnivore seemed to stagger. Its tail twitched sharply as in an effort to recover its balance. Then, quite like any normal creature that is shot through the head, it lost all sense of direction, and made great convulsive leaps around and around, clawing madly at the air, bumping into the rock walls, and uttering soul-shaking shrieks of agony. Like a gargoyle gone mad, it reeled back towards the startled rank of spearmen. As it came, Nelson saw the second Allosaurus rear itself backwards, and balanced on its tail, strike out with powerful hind legs as its maddened fellow drew near. Like razors, the great talons ripped through the dying Allosaurus's belly, exposing the gray-red intestines as the stricken creature raced by, snapping crazily at the empty air. A single mighty sweep of the monster's tail crushed five or six of the panic-stricken keepers and guards, strewing them like broken and abandoned marionettes among the stones. Hissing and obviously terrified, the second dinosaur watched the dying struggles of its mate, then, obedient to a terrified shout from its keepers, wheeled about to join in a frantic rout of the spearmen, who, casting aside shield, spear, and brass coil, fled for dear life in the direction of those invisible passages through which they had appeared. End of Part B